God fulfilling his promises to us, those dreams that he's, he's placed in each one of us. And we talked about believing that he can and he will fulfill those dreams that are according to his will. And so today, we're continuing our series in the life of Moses. And it occurred to me, as I was writing this sermon, that as we work through these passages in Scripture, and I think this is probably the case most any time that we study the Bible, there are passages that we read that are very basic in nature. They're fairly simple ideas, uh, concepts that are easy to understand. And then there are passages and concepts and teachings in Scripture that are great mysteries, profound truths and very complex theologies that aren't so easy to grasp at first glance. And I was thinking about some of the differences between these two types of teachings that we see as we work through the Bible, and particularly the differences in how we respond to them. You see, I think that when we encounter difficult doctrines, teachings that really challenge our intellect, we as Christians, I think, tend to readily accept those and believe them as truth. Teachings like the Trinity, uh, Jesus Christ as God and man, uh, our Father in heaven as, as an uncreated being. These are, these are great mysteries that we can really only hope to grasp at some level as the Holy Spirit reveals them as truth to us whether through our own study and meditation on the Word or through someone with the, the gift of teaching in church, a pastor, or in a Bible study or a home group, and so on. And when we receive good teaching on these difficult doctrines or the Holy Spirit reveals something to us directly, we feel this profound sense of revelation, an impartation of knowledge that I think we so often accept in faith even though we can never really fully grasp them in our limited human ability, at least on this earth. And so in that, we know that the revelation we have is divine. It comes from God because it's something that can only be revealed to us ultimately by Him. And it's confirmed in our hearts. In Daniel 2.28, Daniel explains to King Nebuchadnezzar after all the, ma the magicians and the, and the pagan wise men failed to interpret his dreams. Daniel says to the king, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's still true today. Whether through others or directly from the Holy Spirit, God reveals these great truths to us. And in faith, we often choose to accept what we cannot always fully understand. And by the way, that's perfectly okay. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. As Christians, it's our job to study and meditate on the scriptures and then steward or take care of those mysteries by correctly teaching them and testifying about them to others in the best way that we can. And that includes being honest, by the way, about the parts that we, we cannot always fully grasp. Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of course, we know all that now. But they didn't then. 
This was a mystery revealed to Paul and to Peter and to others. This had incredibly significant and profound implications for the world. And it was a mystery which, when they stewarded it, thank God they did, by sharing it with others, with believers and certainly with unbelievers, it changed the world. So all of that to say, there are great truths, deep mysteries that are revealed to us in Scripture that we can and often do accept and we propagate them to others. But on the flip side, there are also very simple teachings Simple to grasp intellectually and understand. Teachings like love your neighbor, trust God, be humble, serve one another. There's no great mystery here, is there? Conceptually, these are pretty simple to grasp, and yet the most basic, simple truths in Scripture are the ones that we have the hardest time accepting. And I believe the reason for that is because they don't so much require a mental ascent like the great mysteries do. Right? We don't so much have to grasp them in our minds. Rather, we have to grasp and accept them in our hearts. You see, the simple truths require much more of us. They require more than just intellectual acceptance and even passing the teaching of them on to others. The simple truths in Scripture, the basic doctrines, actually require us on a daily basis to live differently, to change the way that we act toward one another, to treat each other differently, to, to give up ourselves for the sake of each other. I'd rather just talk about the Trinity, right? Father, Spirit, Son, three in one. That, that can really be difficult to grasp. But it's a lot of fun to teach. It's, it's wonderful as a pastor to teach difficult passages and watch as the Holy Spirit reveals these great truths to his people. It's actually one of my favorite parts of being a pastor and a teacher. I love teaching difficult doctrines. But look, so much of the Bible isn't difficult doctrine. It's simple truth that is meant to completely transform our lives. That's the whole intent of the gospel, isn't it? The reconciliation of humanity to God. But the ramifications of accepting those simple truths are earth-shaking for us. And therefore, not so easy to accept all the time. I mean, we accept them intellectually, of course. I've never heard Christians arguing about whether or not we're supposed to give our lives up for one another. I think that most Christians believe that that is exactly what we're supposed to do. But I rarely see them doing it. I never hear Christians debating whether or not we're supposed to completely trust in God. But I often see them struggling with that. I never hear Christians refuting the command to love God more than anything else. But there are so many Christians who have put other things before Him. It's the simple truth that we struggle with the most. Because they require the most from us. The reason that I brought all that up today is because I realize that as we go through these sermons and the sermon series that there will be some moments when God reveals deep mysteries to us. And those can be very tantalizing, very exciting. They are for me. But, but don't check out as we talk about the simple truths, okay? Because it's the most, those most basic teachings that will challenge us the most. And if you'll let them, they will bring the greatest change in your life, okay? 
So let's jump into our story now. We finished up last week's message with the crossing of the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, and now uh, the Israelites have safely arrived on the other shore. They're exactly where God wants them. Their enemies have been defeated. And how do they respond? Well, the entirety of chapter 15 of Exodus, with the exception of the last six verses, is their response. It's a worship song. The Hebrew people break out into song. It's like a giant flash mob at the mall. They're singing, they're dancing, there's tambourines. It's this victorious moment for God's people, and they're not going to let it go by without worshiping their leader, their God. It's a snapshot of Israel at its very best. You know, there's never a wrong time to worship God, and especially right after he supernaturally delivered them from this common enemy. It's totally appropriate for them to do what they did. They, they worshiped God with all they had. It should really be a pattern for all of us. Without a doubt, God deserves our worship regardless of how our, our day is going. Even in bad times, he's worthy and he's deserving of our worship. But by all means, when he does something so great in our lives that we're dancing and singing about it, you know, we need to make certain that we're giving him all the credit. We need to express our praise and worship to God often and consistently, and not only because he deserves it, but because, you know, it, it helps us to maintain a healthy perspective. When something great happens, when we make it across our own Red Sea and we, we strut around with our chest out singing and dancing, sometimes I do that. When we plaster our achievements all over Facebook and we, we fail to recognize God's sovereign hand and blessing in our lives, we misrepresent who we are and we discredit God for the great thing that he's just done. Okay, by all means, we should celebrate our victories. In fact, the Bible says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. We should, we should celebrate our victories together, no question. We just need to be sure that all credit is going to God and not all to ourselves. That just helps us keep everything, I think, in its proper perspective, all right? So now, right after the Broadway musical In, in the Desert, Right after the worship service, the remainder of chapter 15 all the way through chapter 18 is this series of provisions by God for his people. And that's what we're going to focus on today, provisions. And this is one of those most basic, simple concepts in scripture that we just talked about, that we have such a hard time with. You know, we all know, or at least we should know, that we're supposed to trust God for all our provisions, You've probably heard or read many times, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. We know that, right? So why do we have such a hard time trusting him completely when we lack, when there isn't enough money, when, when we need a new job, when we need healing, when our marriages are a wreck, when life is kind of going haywire? We know that we're supposed to believe that he will supply every need. So why don't we always believe that? It's because we're more focused on our need than we are on our supply. God is our supply. And we should focus on our supply, not on our need. But the longer we stare at the need, it starts to become the only thing that we can see. And again, we lose perspective. God, our supply, is much greater than all of the need in the world. And so it stands to reason that when we focus on the greatness of our supply, the greatness of our need begins to pale in comparison. 
it begins to atrophy. Okay? And then our trust in God to overcome all of our need is strengthened. And then faith is built up. And then our testimony becomes effective. It's all part of this journey that we're on. The older that I get, the longer that I live for Christ, I believe I'm coming closer to completely trusting him for all of my need. But I'll tell you, my wife will tell you, there are times when I still struggle with this greatly. This week, my wife and I received some fairly devastating news from our CPA, our accountant. It, it turns out uh, that even though I'm a pastor and a really, really nice guy, I still have to pay my taxes. I know, right? It seems unfair to me, too. It seems to me that if you're this nice to people, there should be some kind of exemption for that. But it turns out that I have to pay my taxes just like everybody else. And as we were tax planning with our CPA, or as I like to call it, taking a beating, I'm somewhere in this meeting between curling up in the fetal position on the floor and crying like a six-year-old girl and just going into a you know, full-blown panic attack. And as we're leaving his office when it's all over and I'm twitching in several places like on the, like the verge of a meltdown, my wife begins to talk me down from the ledge. And I can honestly tell you, I can't tell you how many times since we've been on this journey of faith with the Lord over the past several years when I've begun to focus on the greatness of our need. And in those times, my wife always very lovingly and calmly says, Hello, McFly. Have you forgotten how far he's brought us? Have you forgotten all that he's done so far? And she begins to recount all of the provisions that he's brought about in our lives just in these last few years. And it turns my focus back to the greatness of my supply. And it strengthens my faith and it shores up my trust in him. The one who supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory, right? He provides all that we need when we need it. It may not always be all that we want when we want it, but it's always what we need when we need it. And these next few chapters in Exodus really show God providing for Israel in several different ways that are all very relevant, by the way, to our lives today. So let's turn together to the book of Exodus, and we'll have it on the screen. Chapter 15, and we're going to start on verse 22. Again, this is right after they've worshipped God together, right after their, their great victory by God over the Egyptians, and they begin to travel into the wilderness. Exodus 15, starting on 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Okay? So Israel is now clearly east of the salt marshes and the inlets of the Gulf of the Red Sea, and, and they're traveling roughly down the west coast of the Sinai Peninsula. For nomads today, flocks and herds today in that region, they travel on average about 10 to 15 miles per day. In the Exodus, just the Israelite men 20 years and older, at least those able to go to war, numbered 603,550 according to Moses' census in Numbers 146. When you add in women, children, the elderly, foreigners, not to mention their flocks and herds. Most likely talking about somewhere in the vicinity of two million people moving together through the wilderness. If you lined them up ten people wide, you'd have a line that would stretch 150 miles long. 
You can imagine a caravan that size was probably not going a great distance most days. And the problem of finding potable water, drinking water, for a group that size had to be a constant problem. And it was, as we'll see. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And Mara obviously means bitter or bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. This was one of the very first provisions from God to the people of Israel in their wanderings, and it shows us that God provides for us through the resources that we already have. Okay? What does that mean? It means that sometimes when we have a need, we don't have to go looking for something new. We simply need wisdom to draw out what we lack from that which is already right in front of us. See, the Israelites arrived at a watering hole, but the water was bitter. Most of these artesian wells in that area have a high content of mineral salts in the water, so it's bitter, it's unpleasant to drink. The Israelites had been walking for three days. They were thirsty. Their animals were thirsty. The last thing you want when you're really thirsty is bad water. So the people complain about it to Moses, and he cries out to God. I'm so glad that God hears us when we cry out to him. And then it says that God showed Moses a log. Now, an interesting side note here to me is that the verb showed in this verse is the root from, from the word Torah. The, the same root that the word Torah comes from is derived. So just this alone will show you how much richer the Hebrew concept of Torah is than our English concept of the law when we say Torah. In the Hebrew... Any knowledge or, or way to blessing and salvation that was revealed to a person, that's called a Torah. Okay? So when God showed Moses a log, which ultimately sweetened the water, God was providing a Torah, a way of blessing and salvation to the Israelites. A lot of scholars have speculated that that was probably a Barbary bush, which is commonly used by modern Arabs in that area because it's this aromatic shrub that can cover or sort of tame down the taste of, of bad water when it's thrown into an artesian well. Either way, whether this was a natural provision or a supernatural provision, either way, God was using what was already available to his people to provide for them. The water and the log were already there. They just had to be combined to change the bitterness of the water. Sometimes when we face situations in life and we find ourselves in need, Sometimes God provides for us through that which is already available to us. Sometimes we, we pray for a better job because the one we have isn't meeting our needs. That's the right thing to do. If your job isn't cutting it, you need to pray. Cry out to God. He will hear you and he will answer you. But, but be prepared because the answer may not involve a new job. It may simply be a matter of adding another element to the job that you already have. He might provide for you through that which you already have. And that, that may also mean that you're required to be a part of the solution. Maybe he wants you to talk to your boss, even though you don't want to. Maybe, maybe he wants you to start a, a Bible study with your coworkers. Maybe he wants you to pray for your employer and your fellow workers. Maybe he wants you to just go above and beyond your current responsibilities at work to earn favor. I certainly don't know. But, but God may provide a solution for you by simply having you add a new element into your current situation. The, the addition of that one thing, that prayer, that Bible study, that conversation, can turn a bitter situation sweet. 
if that's the solution that God shows you. The Torah for you, the blessing and salvation that you're looking for at your job, in your marriage, in your, in your finances, in your physical or emotional health, health may well be something that's already right there in front of you. Sometimes I think too often we have a tendency to abandon circumstances and relationships before we give God ample time to work. Ask him when you pray. Pray for a Torah. Ask him for a Torah, a way of blessing and salvation for your situation. And then be prepared because he may tell you to work with what you already have. But in that, know that he can take what's bitter and make it sweet, okay? Now in chapter 16 and 17, we see God begin to bring provision to Israel in another way. Chapter 16, the people continue moving south down the west coast of the Sinai Peninsula and they're once again grumbling to Moses and Aaron because they're hungry. And God provides meat for the people in the evening and he provides them with quail. And then in the morning, he provides them with this manna, this heavenly bread that probably tasted like my mother's cheesecake. Which I've often prayed, by the way, would fall out of the sky all over my lawn. <laughs> but that hasn't happened yet. Anyway, this awesome food is being given to them by God on a daily basis. And all that they have to do is gather it. There's nothing really required of them other than to gather up what God has provided for them out of the blue. And then just like in chapter 16, in the first seven verses of chapter 17, Scripture shows us that sometimes God provides for us supernaturally. This is provision that he brings that requires little of us other than making our requests known and then watching God go to work on our behalf. So let's read the first part of chapter 17 starting on verse 1, as the Israelites continue on in their travels. 17.1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord. Aren't you glad he hears you when you cry out to him? What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horev. Okay, that's the same as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. This also confirms, by the way, the prophecy, the promise to Moses by God that I will be with you. Okay? I will stand before you there on the rock at Horev, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And as another side note here, as God promises Moses that he will stand there on the rock... Some biblical scholars contend that the presence of God there on the rock is actually a reference to God as the rock itself. And the command to strike the rock is a command for Moses to strike God himself, as God himself is the source of the life-giving water. Interestingly, with that in mind, this, this incident is the background for and is supported by 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Paul is recounting this portion of the Exodus story in Corinthians, and he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. How cool is that? They may have been drinking life-giving water directly from Jesus Christ himself. Okay? Clearly these events, the quail, the manna, the water from the rock or from Jesus, these were clearly supernatural provisions from God to his people. They weren't required to do anything. They made their requests known, albeit in the wrong manner, and yet God still provided for them supernaturally. And you know what? He still does that today. Soon after Mary Beth and I left the accountant's office, and I quit weeping. There was a lot of prayer, and we were fasting about the situation. That was on Monday. Now, the need hasn't been met yet, although we've been crying out to God. But I will tell you that God has begun to work on our behalf. On our behalf. We opened the mail on Wednesday, and there was a money order in the mail made out to us for a large sum of money with no other name on it but mine. So we have no idea where it came from. It doesn't cover all that we owe, but it's a whole lot more than we had to start with. The money order was written out Monday. No one but my wife and I and God and the accountant knew on Monday that we owed that money. I'm fairly certain the accountant didn't send it. If he did, I'm inviting him to church. <laughs> Whoever sent that money, God obviously laid it on their heart because God knows exactly what we need. You understand? This is a supernatural provision from God. We cry out to him and he answers. We did nothing to cause that check to come in other than to make our request known to God. And don't get me wrong, by the way. We're selling stuff. You know, I'll do whatever I can to make extra so that we're making every effort to pay what we owe. We'll certainly do that. But in the meantime, God knows that there's no way, absolutely no way, I can cover that tax debt on my own. So he intervenes on our behalf. And my faith is being strengthened. And now I, I have a testimony that I can share with you about what God's doing because of his supernatural provision in my life. There are these needs in our lives, and, and some of you have needs right now, and the raw materials, the resources that you need, to bring about a solution just aren't there. But listen to me. Just because you can't see the provision doesn't mean that God won't provide. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean He won't provide it. He's the God of the natural and He's the God of the supernatural. Your job is to make the request known. Philippians 4, 4-7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, here's what you can hang your hat on today. You could be facing the most impossible situation of your life with no solution anywhere in sight. Lay that before the Lord in prayer. Make your request known, that's supplication. And be sure to do it with thanksgiving in your heart. And then allow God to work in your life. 
That doesn't mean we stop functioning. We just sit on the couch and do nothing. We still labor for the Lord. We continue on faithfully. But in the meantime, we trust that he will provide, either naturally or supernaturally. That's up to him. Our part is to approach him in prayer with supplication and with thanksgiving, okay? Now then, let's re-enter our story. Chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. On one side, one on one side, and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Sometimes God provides through what we already have. Sometimes he provides supernaturally. And sometimes God provides through our perseverance. If you just stand and raise your hands, it doesn't take very long for you to be ready to put them back down. Just the weight of your own arms can get tiring after a period of time. And Moses was holding a staff, not to mention that he was 80 years old. He could have easily said, this is too difficult. I'm too tired. I don't want to do this anymore. And he could have walked away. And Israel would have been defeated. But God provided victory and salvation for Israel. The Torah, in part because of Moses' perseverance. He never gave up. He never gave in. Moses persisted and God provided. So what's the point here? The point is don't give up when it gets hard because sometimes life's going to get hard. We all know that. But I, I see so many who get tired of the fight, they're worn down and not willing to stand any longer. And instead of calling out to their brothers and sisters and saying, hey, I need your help. I may not be able to do this on my own, but I'm not going to give up either way. Would you stand with me? Will you hold up my arms? Instead of persevering, even when we can't lift our hands on, on our own, we sometimes just give up, don't we? We throw in the towel. Too weary to fight anymore. Sometimes we give up on our marriages. Sometimes we give up on our friends. Sometimes we, we give up believing for God to provide because we're worn out. And it's understandable. Life can wear us down. People can wear us down. But over the course of my life, I've watched people who were so determined not to give up that God ultimately provided for them through their perseverance long after many of us would have walked away. You see, sometimes God just wants us to persevere. He wants, us to, he wants to season us, to strengthen us. He wants us to stick it out. And ultimately, he'll provide for us through our perseverance, if that's what he's calling you to. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, Paul says, We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. So can I encourage you today, whatever you're facing, Whatever you're going through, whatever you're battling, whatever the need, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't walk away. 
Stay the course. Persevere. Seek help from others if you need to. That's a big part of the reason, by the way, that the church exists. So that we can be here for one another. But whatever you do, don't give up. Because so often your provision will come right through your perseverance from God. Okay? We're going to look at one more point today. And I'll do it quickly. As we finish out this portion of the story, in chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who we've already been introduced to in the story, is coming to see Moses. And he's bringing Moses' wife and two kids with him. And in the first half of the chapter, we see Jethro show up and he and Moses greet one another and then they go into the tent and Moses proceeds to tell Jethro everything that God has done for him and the Israelites. And we don't have time to read all that today. But just know that Jethro now has has just been briefed on everything that's occurred up to this point, okay? So we'll just read a little bit more. Pick up the story in chapter 18, starting on verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. So it's all day long. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Keep in mind here, this is the next day, just after Jethro has heard firsthand all about what God has worked through Moses, miraculously, in a myriad of ways, to deliver the Israelites from every kind of obstacle and enemy that you can think of. And Jethro says, verse 19, Now obey my voice. What? Obey my voice. I will give you advice. And God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you And they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place of peace. Are you kidding me? Every time I read this, it almost shocks me. From the time Moses was at the burning bush up to this meeting with Jethro, he's having regular face-to-face conversations with God himself. There aren't many people who can make that claim. In fact, from that time to now, I don't know of anyone who can claim. The personal interface with God on a daily basis, coupled with the utter display of power, the power of God working through them, like Moses, other than Jesus himself. Deuteronomy 34.10, just after Moses dies, says about him, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. 
none like him, for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Okay? So here's Moses. This guy who every day has been getting detailed instructions directly from God himself about where to go, what to do, who to talk to, how to handle each situation. And all the while, God has proven himself faithful to Moses and provision has come at every turn. And then along comes father-in-law, Jethro. And he sees Moses judging the people and he says, Hey, hey Mo, what are you doing? That's all wrong, man. Listen. Listen to my voice. Obey my voice. Do what I tell you to do. And this will go well for you. It seems to me that any reasonable person in Moses' shoes at this moment would say something like, you know, I appreciate your concern. I really do. But you realize that I talk to God face to face. Every day. He tells me what to do, where to go, what to say, how to handle myself and, and these people. And by the way, because I've been listening to his voice and obeying his voice and doing what, what he tells me to do, we've walked out of Egypt, we've crossed the Red Sea, we've seen the most powerful military on earth destroyed before us, we've defeated the Amalekites, had food and water when we needed it, and I've just about made it all the way back to my favorite mountain, Mount Sinai. So, you know, thanks for the advice, but I think we're good here. Really. I would have said that. It's incredible to me that Jethro, after hearing all that God had done, was even willing to offer advice to Moses. And yet even more incredible is Moses' response to Jethro. Verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Not only did Moses listen to Jethro, he did what Jethro said. And it was a great success. So much so that this was the genesis, you know, this was the beginning of the governmental system for the nation of Israel. This passage is incredible to me, and it speaks volumes about the character and the humility of Moses. And I've heard people say, well, this would have been normal because in the Hebrew culture, it was normal for men to heed the word of their parents and in-laws. Baloney! Moses' relationship and communication with the creator of the universe was anything but normal. It wasn't normal. Not at the time. Nobody else had this kind of relationship with God. And I think it's amazing, and it speaks to the almost unbelievable humility of Moses to be able and willing to listen to the advice of his father-in-law. But there's one more point here that really jumps out to me. And that's the fact that obviously, given the relationship that God had with Moses and the track record of telling Moses how to go about his business on a daily basis, obviously God knew there was a better way for Moses to go about judging the people. God knew that. And given that fact, the fact that he was constantly giving Moses instructions directly 
Why didn't God himself tell Moses the right way to judge the people? Why not just tell him yourself? Why bother going through Jethro? Well, I believe it's because he wants us to understand that God provides for us through other people. You know, this story didn't even have to make it into the Bible, other than the fact that God wanted us to read it. Why the explanation about Jethro giving advice to Moses? On the surface, it seems like a fairly minor side story compared with the rest of the book. Why stick it in there? I believe it's because God wanted us to read this, at least in part, and understand that sometimes he provides for us through others, even when we're close to God on our own. And we hear from him regularly. We still have to be humble enough to receive his provision from others when it comes. I've been on the receiving end of God's provision through others more times than I can tell you in the past four years of this journey. I, I just told you about the check that came in the mail. We've literally been sustained in the past 12 months through the provision of God by other people. It is incredibly humbling, especially for most men. You know, we're generally wired, I think, to be the provider, the breadwinner, the, the great conquering king of our castle who brings home the meat protects our kingdom it's what we do it's hard to accept provision even God's provision from others but it's changed our perspective and listen we're working harder than we ever have and we're seeing fruit in the way of provision coming directly from our labor so it's not a welfare state we're looking for but one of the things that's happened through this is that because I've had to receive provision from others where there's been great need at times. It has better prepared us to help provide for others when we have a little extra to give. You see, my perspective has changed. And I'm by no means only referring to money here, by the way. Certainly, that's been a part of the equation. But we've been provided for in so many other ways, friendships, encouragement, guidance, wisdom, help from people at every turn. And it's better equipped us, my family and I, to provide for other people in the same way. And so I'll close with this. Many of you know that I commute back and forth to work here at the church every day on a motorcycle. It's a 40-mile round trip from my house if I don't go anywhere else during the day, which I often do. Hospital to visit people, to meet and counsel with people, to pick up things for the church. So it's a lot of miles. And we were blessed with a motorcycle, and it gets close to 50 miles to the gallon. And it's been really inexpensive to operate up until now. <laughs> I found out last week that the transmission was going out. And so I was going to have to trade it in for something else. Because the repairs are worth almost more than the motorcycle's worth. So, in looking into the options through an acquaintance, I was referred to this dealership in Asheville who were looking for trades in this particular brand of motorcycle. And they had other used bikes that I could look at and trade for. So I found myself driving to Asheville on my day off this week. And I get there, and I meet with the salesman. And I, you know how the whole deal when you buy a car, it takes a while. So I'm test driving these things, and I'm talking to the guy about the finances and the trade, and on and on and on. And it takes two or three hours. And I get finished, and we, we make this agreement. And I'm going out to leave. And I'm in the parking lot, and the salesman runs out, and he says, excuse me, Mr. Rucci, could you come in for a minute? The owner wants to talk to you. And I said, sure. And so I went in, and he took me into this back office. And there's a young man sitting in there, the owner of the dealership. And 
he started going over the sort of details of the deal with me again, which was a little odd because I'd just done all that. And I could tell something was bothering him. And after several minutes, he stopped. He wouldn't make eye contact with me at first. And he, he stood up and he said, is it true that you're a pastor? And I said, yeah. And he said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, of course. So he got up and he closed the door. And he walked back around and sat in front of me. And he said, I'm 31 years old. And I've been diagnosed with cancer. And as he began to tell me about the treatment, he's had surgery just a couple of days before, and it was successful. Um, but six more weeks of treatment, and he's describing what's happening, he began to cry. And I spent a good hour encouraging him, praying with him. By the way, I told him that our church was going to pray for him today, and we're going to do that in a minute. It was a pretty incredible hour, to be honest. And uh, I know that God sent me to Asheville that day. Shoot, he may have blown my transmission out for that purpose. I don't know. But I want to tell you something. Regardless of what was happening with a motorcycle, I was there in Asheville to provide encouragement and support and prayer and, and friendship to another man who was desperately in need. God brings provision to us in so many ways, and often that's through others. But we have to be humble enough to accept it. He, he, said, he called me about two hours after I got back to Greenville. Justin is his name. And he said, you know, it's hard for me because I've always been very successful and self-motivated and driven. And this isn't something that I would normally ask for help. And he said, I can't tell you. I feel like a thousand pounds has been lifted off of me since we talked and we prayed. And, and I called my wife and we're going to go to church Sunday. See, God provides for us through other people. That might be money. It might be advice. It might be wisdom, encouragement, prayer, whatever it is. Whatever it is you need. And, and when it comes, you know what? Just be humble and grateful and accept it. It's God's provision for your life, okay? So to close this service, we're going to put that into practice for just the next couple minutes. And then I'm going to let you go. If you're here today... And you have a need in your life. You don't have to tell anyone else what it is. It's between you and God. You can if you want to. I'm not going to call you forward. might have to do with your job. Maybe you need healing. Uh, maybe it has to do with your finances or a relationship. Whatever the need. I'm asking you if you'd be willing just for a moment to raise your hand and just humbly admit, hey, you know what? There's a need in my life. You don't have to tell, tell us what it is. Leave your hands up for just a moment if you would. Okay? If you're not raising your hand, please look around and see these folks who've got their hands raised. Because what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to close in prayer. And I want those of you around them to just put a hand on the shoulder. If you would gather around. And let's, let's put this into practice. Just for a couple of minutes. Let's pray for one another. So if you ever need hands up high, if you would now, folks, let's move around really quick and just get to these folks. And we're going to pray together. And then as I'm closing, we're going to pray for Justin together, okay?